everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have an absolutely incredible, wonderful guest today. We have the amazing Bill Real with us today. Welcome, Bill. How are you guys doing? Doing great. We are good. How are you, Landon? Are you feeling good today? Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk to Bill. This is Bill Real is one of the uh, top people in in post-Mormon world, I think, that most people That's know. That's right. So we're really excited to talk to Bill today. That's awesome. right. I'm excited to spend echelon. time with you guys. <laughs> it's going to be great. So I think we'll start out like we usually do on Mormonish, and we'll read a little bio for our guest, although I feel like maybe he doesn't need any introduction, but let's do it anyway in case there's maybe like one person out there who doesn't know <laughs> who Bill Real is. So Landon's going to go ahead and do that. Well, it'll be a short bio because he doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, so Bill was raised in Ohio, and uh, he was a 17-year-old convert. Uh, to the church, and he became a bishop at the age 29. Uh, he and his wife, Amanda, have been married 25 years. They have four children and three grandkids. They live in Washington, Utah, beautiful place near St. George. Uh, Bill's the founder and executive director of Mormon Discussions, Inc., which has been producing Mormon-related podcasts for over a decade. So he's got a lot of uh, people under his umbrella and a lot of podcasters that uh, he's found and brought up. So, uh I think everyone has probably seen Mormonism Live. RFM uh, came under his umbrella. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a few uh, backyard professors under his umbrella. Backyard so professor, yeah, a lot yeah. of people that have come under there. Yeah, no, thank you for reading that, Landon. That's wonderful. And and that's what we were kind of laughing about when we knew you were going to come on because we were like, oh my gosh, you do so much. You have so many passion projects. You're involved in so many things. You have so many people uh, that you uh, co-host with or that you are on their programs. And we're like, what in the world can we, you know, how can we win all this down? What we're going to talk to Bill about. And so, of course, I reached out, as you said, to RFM and I said, we're having Bill on. It's so exciting. What do you think we should talk about for several hours? And he said, well, you should talk about RFM, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Radio Free Mormon. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I thought, you know, I'm not sure. Sorry, RFM, if we're going to do that. I mean, you may come up naturally in the conversation, but probably we're not going to spend the whole two hours talking about you, but thank you very yeah. much for the suggestions. <laughs> I'll try to mention him a couple times. Though. Let's try. It'll be like okay. a drinking game. Every time we say him, we'll lift our cup and that'll yeah. be it. So no, I just, we're just so excited to get to know you more and just talk about some different things. And, and we had sort of a wonderful conversation early this morning, trying to put some things in place about where, you know, what direction our conversation might go. Yeah. And as I thought about you know, what I just said, just all the wonderful things that Bill is involved in and the things that he has put into place and into motion for people in the post-Mormon world. I mean, you could make this lengthy list. And I started thinking of Thrive, uh, which we attended last month. And I know that Bill is always extremely involved in Thrive and supportive of, of that group for post-Mormons. And in our Utah County group, we had the wonderful uh, Stephen Hassan, um, cult mind control expert to come and speak to us. And, and I was lucky enough, I got to host it. So I got to talk to him in person and, and meet him a little bit there. And one of the things that he said that just really struck me is he said that um, when you leave something that's high demand and high control, you want to try to find your true and authentic self on the other side of it. And I remember thinking, and then someone in the audience raised their hand and we took the mic over to them. And, and the person said, well, I've been 
in a high demand, high control Mormonism since I was born. I was born into it. The person said, I don't, I don't know that I have an authentic or true self. I I've never met that person. I don't even know if I have one. And so Stephen Hassan goes, you do, you absolutely do. You just haven't met that person yet, you know, and, and that's exactly what happens on the other side of Mormonism is you start to discover kind of like who you really are. And so I thought that's what, that's what Bill is kind of all about. Just all the things that he's involved in. It, it's helping people on the other side of high demand, high control Mormonism to just flourish and grow and, and become their true self. So I think our conversation is going to go in that direction today, which is wonderful. But first I think maybe if Bill could expand a little bit on his biography, just very quickly tell us, for those who don't know, how did you discover the church? Tell us about your origins a little bit, and then we'll delve into our topic, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so I grew up, if you saw a map of the United States, you found the state of Ohio, and you went right to the center of the state, and then went straight up as high as you could go before you got into Lake Erie. I was right there on the, the coast uh, in central north uh, Ohio. And um, my senior year, well, let me, I guess I should back up. Let me tell you about my family. I'm, I have one brother. We're four years apart. My mother and father were kind of uh, borderline poverty on the front end of our life. And they both worked their tail end off. My mom went back to school and got her LPN license. My dad worked his way up from working road maintenance to being the foreman of a quarry. Um, when I was 12 years old, we moved out of a really tiny house uh, into an apartment. And then finally, my parents bought a nicer home and they really worked their butts off to get there. Uh, we went to a nice school system. Uh, my brother and I, we both played sports all of our lives. Uh, he was better than me uh, athletically. And uh, I had some issues with tearing my ACL on my knees. So I had to kind of set down some of the serious sports like uh, football or, or uh, baseball and ended up just playing golf uh, in high school. And I lettered in golf. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I was, uh, I found a second job at McDonald's and, uh, there was a young lady there working and, and she asked me out on a date and we hit it off really well. And so we started dating her family were, uh, Latter-day Saints and, uh, her father in law or her father would kind of grab me by the ear and say, Hey, why don't you come to church with us? And, uh, tried to do the missionary thing, right. To, to get anybody that was interacting with the family to convert. And so I ended up going to church the, the first time and it was magical. Like I was a 17 year old kid and I felt important. And I felt like this thing I'm learning about is important. And I thought I had a, a really marvelous experience reading and praying about the book of Mormon. I joined the church. And uh, when I was 29 years old, as, as Landon mentioned, I was called to be a bishop. Uh, had a faith crisis. And by the time I'm 32 years old, I'm right in the middle of this faith crisis. And you don't even, you don't even know if you, if you grew up in the eighties or nineties in the church. And for me, it was the nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. The internet's not really quite a thing yet. It's just on the front end. And your ward teaches you a brand of Mormonism. And for a lot of us, it was that McConkie fielding Smith Mormonism, right? That Mormon doctrine kind of Mormonism. The earth is 6,000 years old and Cain is Bigfoot and all of that good stuff. And it was all so the good fun. stuff, right? The good stuff that they it, now it say, was. oh, no, we never taught that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, you did. <laughs> obviously absurd now looking back, but it right. was a fun Mormonism to play around in, a really yep. fun sandbox to be in. Yep. 
But as I learned more and more about the church, and I took it very seriously, I read No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody as I was investigating the church. Uh, I, I went on to websites like uh, there used to be an old website called New Jerusalem. It was Book of Mormon Answer Man. Uh, I you know was reading Farms and Fair Mormon early on. And so even as kind of a, a young adult joining the church, I was passionate about learning everything I could about Mormonism. And very early on, it, members of the ward seemed to think that I knew enough that they kind of posed their questions my direction. And so again, I'm a bishop at 29, faith crisis at 32, and I'm a sitting bishop. And you you don't even know what questions to ask. You don't even know what information is even out there. And as I started to kind of encounter more problematic things, because I've been reading all along, um, I finally found Mormon stories, right? John DeLynn, and he had interviewed Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman early on. And those interviews were so foundational to me thinking new thoughts in my head that maybe the Mormonism I was given isn't the only Mormonism I'm allowed to have. And so I got really excited trying to figure out how to solve all these problems that critics were pointing to and to come up with solutions. And as I noticed that uh, John had become a little more antagonistic towards, say, apologist or the believing perspective, I reached out to him as a sitting bishop and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a bishop right now in Ohio, and uh, I really like what you're doing. I just wish you could be a little more believing, right? As if, as if we can decide what to believe. Uh, what did he I say? I <laughs> think that on the front end. We do. What did he say back to you when you said that? You well, say, he oh, said, I'll let's do an interview. In consideration. I've never, yeah, he said, let's do an interview. I've never interviewed a sitting bishop. And so in 2012, him and I sat down and I did... Uh, this interview on Mormon stories. And when it got done, I thought this podcasting thing can't be too hard. And so I went over to Walmart and got a $19 Logitech uh, headset mic. And I started recording podcasts on Tuesdays under the, the banner of Mormon discussion. And uh, episode four or so, somebody reached out and said, hey, I'm listening to you. And I thought that's so cool, right? Like when someone reaches out and says they're listening. <laughs> and over the course of 10 years, uh, it just it grew and grew. We turned into a nonprofit in 2014. Um, we're at the point now here in 2023, we've got, I think, 11 different podcasts. I think eight of them are active. Maybe nine of them are active. There's 11 different podcast hosts. It's about half female, half male. Um, we've got a board of directors. We, you know, we're running a real nonprofit and putting out content in all of these podcasts every week. And it's, it's a lot of fun to be in the space. You guys know this. It's because you're doing it. It's a lot of fun to be able to share your ideas and your thoughts and the things you learn or to talk with other people and to let them share their expertise or their experience. And then to find out that that helps somebody out there as they're trying to figure out how they used to be one thing and then they woke up one day and now there's something else. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to handle all of that in a way that's healthy and responsible and leads to them being a productive, healthy individual. How, how did that work, um, Bill, where you were, where you started out uh, as a, you know, believing podcast and you ended up on the other side, did your audience go with you? Did your, or did it change over time or how did you feel that that worked? I'm sure it's all of that, but I think people who, I think a lot of people went along for the ride. I think a lot of folks were in the church and trying to make it work. And when I started off with episode one through 150, they were 
they were seriously trying to reconcile the issues while also not allowing church leaders or the things taught in the church to to be based on nonsense, right? Like, let's hold it accountable to some sort of reality. Let's not let anything fly. If somebody says something that can be shown to be completely untrue, like, let's talk about that openly and honestly. But my goal was to stay in the church. And I think the moment that changed was probably the November policy of 2015. That that was kind of the moment where I'd been wrestling with whether the church was true or not. And there was a significant part of my brain that said, no, it's not. But I, I compartmentalize well. And uh, when the November 2015 policy hit, I kind of sensed that maybe the church can't even be good. Like it, it maybe it's not true, but maybe it's not even good. And uh, at that point, I, I tried to be a very direct voice, essentially taking the brethren on, right? Like you guys have to, you have to deal with this stuff in a way that's healthy and try to hold them accountable. And eventually I was excommunicated in, I think, 2018, 2019 uh, from the church. Um, there were a lot of articles down here in St. George. When that, when that happened, a lot of folks showed up deeply appreciative of all the folks that showed up for that, that church trial at church disciplinary court. But Sam Young called me a couple of days before the excommunication, maybe a week before and said, you know, I, I was excommunicated, Bill. And there were a lot of emotions that I wasn't ready for that I didn't even think about that you ought to prepare yourself for. And so I was in my inside myself thinking like, when this happens, I'm going to have to deal with some hard feelings. But if I can be honest, when that excommunication happened, I really had made peace with it by that point. I came out of that disciplinary court really okay. And I've never looked back and I'm really happy of the way I conducted myself and what I stood up for and the things I pointed to and the ideas and, and criticisms I raised. And uh, I, th I think, even though the church got rid of me, I, th I think like all of us who are uh, public voices for change that end up getting excommunicated, I think we also end up, the church has to make some changes because of it too. You know, you look at Sam Young and somebody's allowed to sit, you know, now two adults are allowed to sit with a kid and, and that's not the right answer, but it's better than it was. And so uh, I'm really interested in, in the way this thing shifts and moves. I certainly don't believe it anymore, but I would want nothing more than it to kind of become healthy over the next couple hundred years. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you. Uh, I'm yeah. similar to you, Bill, in that, uh, you know, when I, as I was leaving, I'd look at things and I'd say, um, I, I want to stay in. I want to try to stay in or make it work. But then I realized that really all the change was coming from the outside. Uh, yeah. You had no voice inside, but the people on the outside were making the changes. And you saw that through Sam Young and uh, through some of the other Kate uh, voices on Kate, uh, Kelly, yeah, Kate sure. Kelly and different people like that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it obviously led you, leads you that route. It almost leaves you no other choice uh, but to to do that. And if you're honest with yourself, like you said, you start getting to the point where you say, I can't support that to be my authentic self. The very thing I learned in the church was to be honest and, and to be, to, to stand up for what I believe. And so when you see that and you have to all of a sudden stand up for what you believe, and and then all of a sudden there's a price to be paid from the church itself <laughs> for yeah. standing up for what you believe. So it takes a lot of courage to do that. Yeah, you you look at and what it costs to be in the tribe, not necessarily a religious belief system, just 
any tribe, right? Like you go back hundreds of thousands of years and our survival depended on us collaborating and working together and caring for the group of us who lived together, whether it was in a cave or out in the Serengeti or, you know, up in the trees or whatever, like you go back far enough and, and we've been, we've been spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, uh, fitting in to a group of people. Again, going back to what you said in the beginning, Rebecca, compromising parts of ourself for the greater good of, of our group. Right. And so deciding one day that you can no longer hold the beliefs that that tribe requires you to have, and, and they make it sound so easy, right? Like just choose to believe, just have faith. But if I said have faith in leprechauns, your brain automatically knows that you can't choose to believe in something that your brain knows on the onset is absurd. And so the moment that Mormonism became absurd for me, I couldn't choose to believe in it anymore. And when you separate from your tribe, the people that you care about and the folks who take care of you and you take care of them, I don't, I don't, I, my mom died of cancer about within about a year of when I was excommunicated from the church. And I tell people that leaving Mormonism, deconstructing that, wanting it to be true, but running into challenges to that at every turn was significantly harder than losing my mom, who was only 59 years old to, to cancer. Um, that was hard, but losing my tribe, losing my religion was, was even harder than that. Yeah, it's the whole concept of wrapping yourself in a mythology that everyone around you has. In our book club, the Good Book Club, we read one of our second books that I think it was the second one, wasn't it, Landon, yep. that we read was Sapiens. Yuval and of course, Harari. that book is, yeah, exactly. And of course, that yeah. book is all about that, about the myths that we tell ourselves to bind ourselves together, the collective myths that we decide on that become our reality. And, and that's what it is. When you rip yourself away from that, it's just excruciating, I think. And, and people don't understand what you've done. I think that's the other part. Part of it. They really can't fathom how you can't possibly still be in this construct that you've been in many people for their entire lives. So I think that's why it's so painful. But so I love, I love the idea that you, as you said, having created Mormon discussions and gathered all these people, you know, I almost think of them like superheroes. <laughs> Everyone has a particular talent or a bent, and they're just there for everybody on the other side. They're there with what they say and what they do and, and their actions and what they project. And, and I just, I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious how you gathered this super team that you gathered. You know, it's just so incredible to me The the brain trust, the talent, the people that are in Mormon discussions that are just, just doing so much good. Like, how did you find everybody one by one in I'm again years I'm not going to be good at timelines but somewhere around maybe 2014 2015 2016 somewhere in there I just got burned out and I realized you know the podcast wasn't bringing in much uh, in terms of donations I think we were at maybe 20,000 bucks a year and I was working a full-time job. I was a floor covering salesman in Ohio. And then I managed a pawn shop out here in, in Utah and um, working full-time and keeping a podcast going for years is really difficult. And people don't understand that, but it's, you guys know this. I mean, the time it takes to find a guest, get an outline worked out, um, publicize the podcast, record the audio. If you choose to edit it, you've got that much more time in editing it. 
Now you're publishing it. Now you got to publicize that it's published. People don't realize that sometimes just to put out a single episode can be 15 hours of your time. And, and so I was working a full-time job and uh, doing the podcasting thing. And I just got burned out. And at the time, John, of course, had like a thoughtful faith with Gina Colvin and Mormon matters with Dan Witherspoon and uh, Jared Anderson, Mormon Sunday school. And I, I thought maybe a way to do it would be to bring other folks in and create sort of an umbrella so that content was always coming out, but I didn't always have to be the one creating it. And when I reached out to see if anybody was interested, the, the two main podcasts that got started were, of course, Radio Free Mormon. And, and I won't tell the full story here because part of it has to do with his anonymity, but him and I connected on something else. And in that conversation, we had somewhere else on something else. Um, he was just brilliant. And you could tell that in the conversation. We sat and talked for two hours and I could just tell he was deeply informed and, and very intelligent. And I said, you know, you, I think you'd be really good at podcasting. And he said, well, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, I'll show you. And so I took a couple of weeks and just a day here and a day there and spent some time showing him how to use Audacity and to record audio and, and then got him going. And as soon as he recorded episode number one, I, I, I just knew immediately that he was going to be a huge success. He, he just has a way of putting a storyline together and the facts kind of deconstructed and, and put in front of his audience that's if I'm honest, it's just brilliant. Uh, I remember la I remember listening several times to his episode. Again, here we are mentioning him. I listened several times to his episode uh, uh, with Elder, yeah, with Elder Hall and Wrong Roads. And my my daughter listened to it and laughed. My wife listened to it and laughed. And they won't, they wouldn't touch Mormonism with a 10-foot pole, even when they were believing and active, you know. And uh, the other podcast was Marriage on a Tightrope, Alan and Katie Mount. Yeah. And I think. I think Alan and Katie do the most important work under our umbrella to take what I think is the most fragile thing when you're deconstructing, which is your relationships with the people you love. And for them to care enough to try to help those marriages. And I think to some lesser extent, relationships with siblings or parents or children to help that the believer and the non-believer stay together and not let the church be the thing that they split up over. And so I think they just do such a, a huge work uh, within what we do. And once they got going, we had other people come and some come and go. And again, most podcasts don't make it very long. Uh, it's just the nature of the business. There's just not enough money coming in and you end up getting tired and burned out. But um, so some came and gone, but as time went on, we had, you know, those, those two podcasts running those three people. Uh, there were a couple others with us at the time. And eventually got to the point where I had mostly just males. Katie was the only female. Katie Mount was the only female in our umbrella. And I looked at our board of directors and it was all guys. And I just didn't want to represent more patriarchy. And I wanted to put my money where my mouth was because I'm not for patriarchy and I'm not for sexism. And so I reached out and said, is there any females out there? I, I First off, I went and found uh, women who I thought were uh, pillars in, in our uh, community down here, and uh, but that I knew uh, personally, and I asked them if they would serve on our board of directors. And so our board of directors has one more man than woman now. And our I think we have one more female host than male host right now within our umbrella under, under the host. 
And so I feel like we're really doing a good job of splitting it right down the middle and representing both female and male voices in the content and female and male voices in the leadership of how our nonprofit runs. And I'm really proud of that. And, and so it's, it's was years of me not thinking twice about it. And then part of my own awakening was realizing that I was perpetuating patriarchy and sexism inside my own entity. And I wanted to fix that. Yeah, I, I love Renee. I love Marty Lynn. I, like I said, there's something for everyone there, no matter yeah. what you're struggling with or what maybe your personality type is or who speaks to you, who resonates with you. There is somebody, you know, that you're going to find that you're going to learn something from under this umbrella, like you said. And I yeah. love that. And it's an umbrella for people that are trying to navigate the other side. Yeah, they're they're super smart voices. In every one of those, Terry Hale's Emancipate Your Mind is just a brilliant podcast. Um, again, every one of these, where will you go? Uh, yeah. You know, Almost Awakened, Britt Hartley really runs the podcast. I join her every yeah. week to have a conversation, but she really puts everything together. And uh, I'm really grateful to be rubbing shoulders with these really smart minds in Mormonism. Yeah, when, when you were looking for these, you. did you were you looking for specific topics? I mean, they seem to you know, cover different areas. You've got the marriage, you've got, uh, the, you know, the, some of the women things with Renee. Uh, uh, I think, uh, Marty Lynn does more, uh, how do you, how do you make peace kind of type yeah. thing? Uh, yeah. did you look for certain things or did it just come out that way? I opened up for anybody to submit that they were interested. And, uh, and then I asked folks to kind of submit an episode, like record something and share it with me. And about 20 women reached out to me, about 10 or so kind of took it to the next step and, and submitted some material. And I just picked the ones, you know, ran it through our board and picked the ones that I thought were the um, most likely to succeed. And, and no offense to anybody who didn't make the cut. Uh, I'm not the perfect judge and neither is our board of directors of, of what works and what doesn't work. But in these kinds of decisions, that's what you do. You go with what you what you think works. And I'm really thrilled with every one of them and the content that they create. Um, you know, Dissident Daughters with uh, Ada uh, is another one. And I just think the conversations are, like you say, they're all in different paths. I mean, Terry Hale's Emancipate Your Mind is helping people get over religious trauma. Marriage on a Tightrope is helping a mixed faith marriage. Uh, Radio Free Mormon is taking these messy things in the history and he's laying them out so anybody can with a, with a reasonable mind, understand the issue, it's ins and outs. Um, almost awakened, forgets Mormonism altogether and says, let's give you some tools on the second half of life that helps you to be a healthier, more, uh, more happy, more, a better well-being individual. And, and all of them have their own little facets to them. And it's so exciting to kind of see everybody do their own thing. But no, it, it wasn't exactly intentional. It sort of just worked out that way that everybody was coming from a different angle. But hey, we humans are different. Why wouldn't that have happened. Exactly. That's why I, I seriously look at everybody like a, a group of superheroes. You know, yeah. everybody has a special power that can help somebody and, and give them what they need. So I love it. In fact, I know the backyard professor said he was going to draw a cartoon of all of the post-Mormon uh, superheroes. Mm. It, I wish he would do that. I think that would be really fun to see. So I, I love, love it. it. So I think, yeah, this is just wonderful. And, and this fits right into where we're going to go with this conversation of being on the other side and 
um, the tools that can help you kind of reclaim or even just get to know for the first time who you really are, what you really think, you know, and, and where you want to go now that you have this freedom. So maybe talk a little bit, just what are your thoughts about that? The authentic self on the other side. Do you agree that, that there is somebody that maybe you haven't even met yet once you step away as far as who you are? What are your thoughts on that? And then I think we'll talk about some specific tools um, that we can use maybe to get in touch with, with that side of ourselves. I love it. So you mentioned Sapiens, Yuval Harari is the author and anybody who hasn't read that book, I would highly recommend it. It was so influential to me beginning to understand. I've got it on my shelf. I call it the post-Mormon Bible. A lot of people, that's actually how Landon and I met. We met on Reddit just anonymously, both posting about this amazing book, Sapiens. And then we kind of said, well, let's start a book club. So it is, it brings people together. (laughs) The thing that stuck out to me, if you remember the first half of the book was for me, much more dynamic and influential. The second half, I had a little more trouble getting through, but I did read the whole thing. Um, Sapiens, if you remember in the first half of the book, there's this conversation around the size of groups of humans and what tools work for them. And so in a small group of either homo sapiens or something before that, uh, you really can survive on intimacy. If there's only 15 of you and you huddle around the fire every night in the cave and, and you go out and hunt together and gather together, you know each other well enough that you are going to be, uh, you're going to know somebody, their, their skills and their flaws. You're going to know whether you don't take Jerry on a hunting trip because he trips over his own two feet, or you're going to know you take, uh, you take Betty with you because she throws a spear really well. Uh, or, you know, that Jenny collects grapes, uh, you know, really well. Uh, and so she's really good at gathering. Uh, but maybe Tom isn't Tom seems to pick up the stuff that gets us all sick. And, and so we knew who was good at things and who wasn't. And so intimacy is what worked. But the trouble with a group of 15 is you're easily slaughtered by a group of 50. And humans have always been warring with each other and trying to get their own tribe to survive at the expense of killing off the other tribe. And so in a bigger tribe, uh, we humans, if you look at the primate family, they will spend hours every day grooming each other. Uh, the bonobos or the, the the gibbons or the chimpanzees, they'll pick little gnats out of each other's hair and essentially groom. And that's that serves the purpose in a larger group of saying, hey, I don't see you very often, but I care about you, right? Well, we humans, we invented language and we invented this thing called gossip. And so in a group beyond say maybe 25 or so, intimacy no longer works because I know you, Rebecca, but I don't know Landon, but you can tell me about Landon. And so now you're telling me his strengths, which is you praising him, or you telling me his flaws, which is you gossiping about him, uh, leads me to understanding what his skill set is. And so now I have a level of trust that's one layer away. But the trouble with being a, a tribe of 50 that gossips is that a tribe of 200 still kills you. And so at some point, we humans went to the next stage in what we used, and that was myth. And myth is really powerful because myth can almost have numberless amounts of people. And uh, if you and I agree to the same story, and we're the good guys within that story, and our enemies are the bad guys within that story, I don't need to know you at all, other than you wear the tattoo on your on your face, or you have the 
bracelet on your hand or you have the marking on your on your clothing that indicates that you and I are in the same tribe. And and then that will be enough that you'll work together and the smaller tribe will get uh, essentially slaughtered, right? And so it's the reason why you, you're out on a battlefield and if you both wear the US, US military uh, garb on and the other side has some other country's garb, you know immediately who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. The trouble with tribes is that there's an expectation of what it is to be part of the tribe. You have to play your part and you have to play your role. And what that means is you have to wear a mask and you have to worry about fitting in. And so all of us, uh, when we are concerned about, and I'm going to use the word belonging, we want to belong, but it's not really belonging. It's fitting in. Fitting in requires that you compromise yourself and belonging means you're accepted as you are. But to be part of a tribe, you have to fit in. You have to compromise parts of yourself and be things that you're not exactly in order to be what others expect you to be so that you can be part of the tribe. But pretending to be somebody never ends up with the net benefit at the end that you think will come with it. You're always chasing something. And I think there comes a point in our life, especially if you've begun to deconstruct your system and, and the tribe that you belong in, you begin to realize that this fitting in thing only works if you do put the mask on and, and be what they want you to be. At some point, I decided I wanted to be who I was. And I, I would agree with Stephen Hassan that all of us have an authentic self. And I also agree with the person who was talking to him that you might have spent your whole life not exploring that. And you may be clueless to who your true self is. But I made a decision probably five years ago that I was just going to be me and let the chips fall where they may. And it means what it means is that I don't always get the acceptance of, of all the people that I want. There are people I really like being around, but maybe I'm just not a good fit for them. But what I do find is that I don't feel this burden that comes with trying to fit in and never quite being what other people want or being what they want, but you don't like yourself for it. And I think when you just decide to be yourself, there comes a, a contentment where you're just happy. And again, life is messy. People are happy and unhappy all throughout their lives. But I definitely feel a higher degree of happiness and contentment the moment I decided to just be, be Bill Real. So did that did that uh, decision to change five years ago? That's 2018, right? When you get got uh, excommunicated, did you feel like that was thrust upon you by the excommunication, or do you feel it's a choice you made and that choice led to the excommunication and you just went off on your own? Uh, you know, were you? Were you yourself before that, or did that free you up to, to be yourself? I think it's both. Um, I think the church, by pressuring me to fit in, especially as I got louder, right, as I'm starting to speak out, it's, it's now sending its stake presidents to have regular meetings with me and to try to tell me to rein it in. But I just wasn't going to be happy reining it in. I wanted to speak up my truth. It tells, it tells me its truth. And I wanted to speak up and tell my truth. And what I, what I started to sense was that my inner gut, my inner intuition to know how to treat another human being or what's right and what's wrong. And, and I don't even like those words anymore, but um, I, I noticed that I had 
the ability to make judgment calls about what is healthy or unhealthy, what is responsible or irresponsible. And I was doing a better job of it than the authorities that I put trust in, in my tribe. And the moment I sense that I'm better at this thing of figuring out how to be good to people than, than my outer authorities were, I let go of my outer authorities. And I just said, I'm going to trust this inner gut thing going on. And I really enjoyed the person that showed up doing that. Um, when I would go to a party or be a, uh, in space with a group of people, I really enjoyed making way for them to be all of them and me not needing them to fit any expectation I had. And so the church, part of it probably was my choosing to just start leaning into my authentic self. And part of it was the church trying to pressure me to continue to be this good, faithful, believing Mormon. And being a good, faithful, believing Mormon for me meant that I was going to be a less healthy, uh, a less uh, good human being. It's interesting that you say that. Uh, we, uh, well, Rebecca interviewed Noah Rochetta uh, a couple months ago on the book yeah. club from John DeLynn. And uh, one of the things he said is uh, that I really liked is, you know, you, you always see these people with the bracelet, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And uh, he said, you should be saying WWID, uh, what would I do? Yeah. And if you as a person are, are being authentic, then that's really the true test of who you really are. It's not what someone else is telling you to do that you're doing. It's what you yourself choose to do that really decides the person you are and whether you're a moral person or however you want to define moral. Uh, but, but you get to decide that. And that's really the decision as to what kind of person you are when you make the decision yourself and you're not following everyone else's, you know, decision for you. Yeah. If you take narcissists out of the picture completely and you take sociopaths out of the picture completely, most of us are pretty decent human beings and when we're not operating on fear or shame, we tend to make really decent decisions or good decisions about how to treat each other and how to act in the world. The trouble is that we, we feel things. We human beings can't help it. We've been feeling things long before we were able to talk about things. Uh, and some of the things we feel um, scare us. Like, for instance, when we lived 200,000 years ago and you're walking on the Serengeti, uh, a lion would come out of the woods and your heart would start racing and you would do whatever it took to survive. And here we are in 2023 and we've essentially pulled ourselves out of the food chain. We don't have any predators that come after us anymore. We essentially in the modern world get to live in our nice houses and be comfortable. But the feelings of being scared that something is threatened, that our life is in danger or our things are in danger uh, still prompts us to, out of fear, to make very unhealthy choices. And so I think as long as we can learn to sit with our feelings and not, not operate based on our ego telling us that something's threatened, we humans, again, minus the narcissists and the sociopaths, we tend to do pretty good if we don't have those out, outer forces or that ego fear shame uh, working within us to get us to do something else. Now, I always kind of felt like, I mean, eventually kind of it came to a head for me that I felt like I was constantly being asked to override my gut feelings. You know, I would hear something at church or something, and I would just say, oh my gosh, my gut is telling me the opposite. Yet in order to remain in the tribe, um, 
on board with the myth, I had to constantly override, I mean, I think even my moral compass. Did you have feelings like that? I mean, just over and over, it finally came to a head for me where I just, I've just said, I can't do this anymore. Everything I'm hearing is counterintuitive to what I feel inside. Yeah. I had this moment. I had, I had moved from Ohio to Utah. I was running a home with our family in Santa Clara, Utah. It was, you know, a ward was every three blocks. Uh, we walked to church and it was a good ward, but I was to the point where if, the, if something was taught out of the manual, that was just not true. And that teaching was going to perpetuate some sort of harm or trauma, for instance, minimizing the reasons why people leave. So the example is the lesson on Simon's Rider and Thomas Marsh, right? And, and so when they, when I knew that was the next week's lesson, I was the financial clerk in the wards and that was the bit on the Bishop's end and the Bishop Rick's end intentional. I'm the person that the church generally wants them to keep an eye on. They don't want me to be in a place where I can speak to the members and teach them. So they hide me away as the finance clerk so they can keep a close eye on me and I don't get to say anything really to anybody. And, but I was in the office with them counting the tithing money and I shared with the bishop, I said, hey, just FYI, next week, there's a lesson being taught on, on Thomas Marsh and Simon's Rider. And the lesson says, you know, how horrible apostates are when they leave and that, you know, Thomas Marsh left over milk strippings and Simon's Rider left because his name was spelled wrong. And we, we get fed these stories because we trust our authorities. And so we trust these stories to be true. But if we just pause for a moment and go, does it really make sense that somebody left entirely because their name was spelled wrong? Or they left entirely because some other person took some milk and didn't give them the strippings? It's sort of absurd. And then when you dive into Thomas Marsh's life and Simon Ryder's life, they had maybe those concerns but they had a host of other concerns as well. And there were lots of things that were bumping into their ability to persevere in the church. And, and some of it to just to be honest was the church's fault and Joseph Smith's fault. Right. And so I told the Bishop, I said, I'm not going to sit quiet next week. I said, I'm going to be in that room. And when they tell that story, I'm going to raise a hand and I'm not going to let nonsense and untruth be taught. And the bishop said, how do you know what's true or what isn't? And I said, and I said, and this is maybe a little arrogance, but I said, because I've read more than you, right? Because that's the only way we can know things is to learn them. And if we sit back and just take things for granted without spending any time trying to be educated on them, and we ought to trust the people who are the most educated on these issues. We ought to listen to both sides, certainly, but we ought to get the most informed people on these issues, lay out all the angles and then make informed decisions about what makes the most rational sense. Um, he gave me quite a bit of pushback in that office. And then the next week when I went to raise my hand, I was told I wasn't allowed to answer the question. I wasn't allowed to pose any comments. And it had become, it had become clear that behind the scenes, the leadership of the ward and the teachers in the ward had been told not to let Bill Real speak. And I remember leaving church that day and my hand was just shaking. Um, I always, on Saturdays, I always got excited for church. And the moment that happened was the first time I'm like, and I didn't think the church was true at this point, but I, I wanted it to be good. And I wanted it to, to, to get better. And I wanted to make the changes that would treat people good. And when I walked out of church with my handshaking, I just said, you know, this isn't worth it. Like you, it, it, it's not worth it anymore. 
this is causing me personal harm and trauma that is not going to be good for my own well-being if I continue doing this. And so the next uh, the next Sunday morning, I I woke up, my wife was next to me, and I said, baby, I just can't go anymore. And uh, she said, I'll call, I'll call my primary president. I'll let them know I can't do my lesson today and I'll turn my books in this week. And uh, that was the end of it um, because it, it does come with a cost. Once you know it's not what it claims to be and you understand how toxic some of the messaging is, it's really difficult to sit through it. And then when they take your voice away, the experience uh, for me personally uh, was harmful. It wasn't any good for me anymore. When when we talk about myth or we talk about sapiens, you know, one of the thing great things about the myth is that people will come together to do something together that they wouldn't generally do individually because of the belief in the myth. And I think that's one of the things in the church that you especially miss when you leave is that you felt like you all were working towards this one thing. And now all of a sudden you're kind of out there on your own to develop a new myth almost, because as Sapien said, almost everything's a myth. We're all following a myth. Everything's myth. So how do you, what did you do to find a new myth or what have you done to replace the myth of the church uh, that you found uh, helps you in your life? Yeah. I call myself an atheist and I call myself a mystic. And uh, I, I don't believe there's any conscious being out in the universe directing our affairs. That just doesn't seem rational to me. Like how did a person become a magic person out in space somewhere and can influence millions and millions of light years away from things going on and, and they're aware of all of it? Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I do think that if we break God down, and again, I'm an atheist, but if we break God down to the three things that are kind of at the base level of how we define God, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, he's uh, omnipresent, all present, and he's omniscious or omniscient, all knowing, right? If I think about the creative energy of the universe 13.7 billion years ago, the Big Bang happens, whatever that means, whatever that energy is that proceeded from that moment in that small space and then emanated everywhere, it, that creative energy is all present. You and I are it. The animals are it. The rocks are it. It is all knowing. Anything that is known is known by it. Meaning that we, uh, Eckhart Tolle says, we are the universe expressing ourselves as a human for a little while. If you really understand that the frogs and you and aliens on other planets, if they exist, are the universe then every piece of knowledge, every piece of information, every tool or technology is known by that creative energy. And it's all powerful. Everything that's been created was created by it. And so I don't believe in God by the standard by which most people would say God. But if you said, I don't need God to be a conscious being, it can just be the creative energy of the universe, then I'm all in. And that was the myth I connected to is that we're all connected. You and I, are really the same human who had, was born with different genetics and a different history behind us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. And we had our own unique experiences. I had mine and you had yours. That 
you are me just under a different set of circumstances. And that gives me a, a myth story that allows me to go into the world and try to treat people like the golden rule, because the golden rule is treat others as you would have others treat you. But really it's go ahead and treat yourself, which is everyone else, the way you want to be treated. And, and so I find that myth story to be really helpful. Another thing, uh, and we can, you know, I don't know if you guys were planning to go into this or not, but another thing that really helped me were, if I can be honest, were drugs. Um, cannabis uh, helped me. When I take cannabis, I am much more calm. I'm much more in touch with my healthier side. My ego is quieted a little bit. I have much better advice for my kids when they have a problem. I have much more capacity to uh, manage my feelings in a healthy way without hurting or manipulating the world around me. Um, and, and that's a minor one. And, and there are others that I think are even more deeply helpful, but I guess I'll see if how far you want to go into that. <laughs> we would love to discuss it. We actually haven't really discussed that on Mormonish. And that is a topic that comes up over and over as far as people saying you're so locked in before and, and you try, you do as much as you possibly can to expand and to open, but you were so locked in some of us from birth that it's almost impossible without some outside influence like that. So yeah, I would love to talk more about your experiences and, and just what you've found, because I mean, do you understand what I mean by locked in? I think mm -hmm. you just, you cannot emote, you cannot open up, you cannot free yourself. You just, you try, but you can't, you just, your brain is not hardwired that way. And I've never tried anything yet. I'm very open to it because I've heard so many wonderful things about it. Um, but just the idea that you actually do need some outside help and influence to re-hardwire the way that you're thinking. This is what I've heard. Haven't you kind of heard that, Landon? Yeah. I've, I've talked to several people and this, the psychedelics uh, are one of the things I hear a lot about that people just say, wow, it was just an incredible experience that completely changed. And it was almost a spiritual experience. Uh, and I've, I've been seeing that more and more as I've watched different podcasts and uh, there's actually some uh, series on Netflix and other things that, uh, that cover that. So uh, I know there's a, even a, a post-Mormon group, I believe that almost started like a, I don't know if you'd call it a church or, or what it is, but they're, they're definitely following that. So um, I know that's something that you've talked about. I think when we were at Thrive, you had mentioned that. So yeah. uh, how, how did that impact you or, or help you or in which, what way did it influence you? Yeah. I, I tend to have certain data points I point to in all of these conversations. And I think they're important for kind of laying the groundwork because I think it's easy when you, if you're, if you're a believer in the church or you're just starting to kind of deconstruct things, the idea of drugs is super scary. And, and so first I would say that on some level there are risks, right? It, it's not fair to say that any of these things are a hundred percent safe. Um, and so for instance, if somebody has borderline schizophrenia or if they've got really serious depression, these drugs can do really incredible things with depression. We'll talk about that here in a second, but there are also risks. Um, I remember once in a podcast saying that mushrooms are completely safe, that no one's ever died of an overdose of mushrooms. And that's sort of true, but 
It's also not exactly true. There's a very small percentage of people, probably 1% or less, but if they are borderline schizophrenic or they suffer from serious depression, those drugs have the potential, such as mushrooms, have the potential to send somebody into a psychotic state that may take years to come out of, or maybe they won't come out of at all. Um, and so anybody taking uh, a substance that alters your consciousness, you do have to make an educated decision about whether that's for you or not. And I wouldn't tell anyone at this point in my life that they have to do something or should do something, only that I would share what my personal story is, and then I would share what the data says. The data says that when people with depression have gone into studies with mushrooms, uh, folks that came away from that study, the depression was either entirely gone or was deeply diminished uh, in a large number of people beyond what the depression medications are doing. And I have two friends personally who were taking depression medicine, uh, took mushrooms and just immediately no longer needed the medicine at all. They were just fine without their meds. Uh, you also see these uh, studies that are being done with MDMA or Molly ecstasy, where they did three therapeutic sessions with soldiers who had PTSD and PTSD. If you understand, uh, and I'm not a doctor at all, so please, none of this is, this is just simply research data that's coming out. Um, the folks that had PTSD, when they did three therapeutic sessions with MDMA, when they got done, they would come back uh, like whatever it was three months later and question them and see how they were doing 76%. And by the way, when we treat PTSD with our standard means, not using these kinds of drugs, you can give people tools to cope with these things. You can diminish the PTSD a little bit, but PTSD isn't something you can really get rid of except here. 76% of people reported PTSD was completely gone. And when they came back like a year later, it was still in the 60 percentile somewhere. And to me, that's incredible data that if we can give somebody a certain medicine an MDMA, for instance, deeply diminishes or reduces your ego down to almost nothing. So you don't have this uh, egoic attachment to your human experience in your narrative. And so while under the influence of MDMA, you can have these really vulnerable conversations with whoever you're talking to, where you can, where number one, your ego is not protecting you. So you're able to talk about things that you would have avoided because you're protecting yourself, right? And so you'll have these really tough conversations around really deep issues. You can separate your trauma from your own being. And so when you come out from this medicine, you take this work with you. And so you you essentially have done years of therapy within a three or four hour session of using MDMA. Same thing with the mushrooms on, on depression. And so whether it's cannabis or MDMA or LSD or mushrooms, um, ketamine just in the last year or two has become really big here in Utah and it, it offers the same sort of benefit. Um, one of the, one of the most incredible transformative nights I ever had was doing ayahuasca and ayahuasca is like mushrooms, but it's like mushrooms on steroids. I, I always tell people if, if you're on cannabis, it's like your buddy's driving and you're sitting in the passenger seat. If, and you, you know, you have some influence on where you go and what you do. And if you're on mushrooms, you're sitting in the back and you don't have any say on where you're going. But if you're doing ayahuasca, it's like you're 
zip tied in the trunk and uh, and you're going to go uh, on a blast off to a journey that you couldn't even have imagined. And we did this two night event uh, in Nevada where I, I did ayahuasca with uh, like 11 other people. And we sat in a circle and we had a shaman. And by the way, I, ayahuasca is not recreational. Um, you're not going to take this and just go have fun for an evening with your friends. You're going to be throwing up in a bucket all night. You're going to be having some sort of journey, either talking to your dead ancestors, working through some childhood trauma. Um, but for me, it was, I got to sit and have this experience where I sort of shared, and again, I don't believe this is real. It's all in my head, but I also can't explain it. I, I literally felt like I shared the consciousness with some ancient ancestor from hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I watched as we shared the same body, I watched how he handled things going on in the room. And I learned how human beings create ritual and, and why myth is so powerful. And the easiest way I can describe it is I experienced what Terrence McKenna defined as the stoned ape theory, where uh, ancient ancestors came in contact with uh, medicine tools and it widened their scope of awareness to such an extent that whatever we used to be, it made that leap into something much closer to humans where our brains were able to think in past and future and to come up with abstract ideas. And it was just monumental for me. It, that night did more for my ability to, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, to think through um, the second half of life, having tools to be a better human being than anything else had an impact on me. It was just incredible. Um, these things are tools. And if they're used appropriately, and then they are spiritual experiences in the church, a spiritual experience was the hair on my arm stood up or I got an answered prayer because I needed burning something. So, yeah. Burning in the bosom. <laughs> Take ayahuasca and any of those things will be essentially nothing compared to the experience. I, I was in a cave talking to aliens. Uh, again, I shared the consciousness with an ancient chimpanzee or ancient ancestor of humans. Um, all, all the folks in the room were going places. Somebody was dealing with sex abuse when they were a child. Somebody else was talking to their dead grandmother. Uh, and everybody seemed to get what they needed. And the whole night you're holding a bucket and you're purging. And it's hard to explain, but you think of throwing up in in this world is not enjoyable at all. And the throwing up isn't fun, but somehow holding your bucket and purging the things that needed to come out. Cause as you're throwing up, there's, you just recognize that it's, it's symbolic of real things that you're storing inside you that need to come out. And I, I actually really enjoyed holding that bucket and purging all evening. And, and it's so weird too. Again, I don't, I'm kind of a rambler, but the shaman would play this gorgeous music and he had two uh, helpers with him and he would play guitar and they would sing songs. And it was the most multi-dimensional music you could imagine. It was, I don't, I can't even explain it. And it was not any songs that existed. They wrote their own music. And some of the songs would call you to purge. And some of the songs would call you to calm down. And some of the songs would call you to 
think about your family and your ancestors and to, to do some inner work there. And every song had meaning and, and they knew who to sing to. They would start playing a song and they would go sit by somebody. And it's like they could sense that that person just needed that, that issue addressed. Uh, it, was, it was a two-night thing and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever participated in. Uh, I cherish that, that night, those nights. It, it was just absolutely amazing. These are tools. They do help you to develop because we all see the world our way. And these drugs make you for a few hours, see the world a different way. And when you experience life, it's almost like being in someone else's shoes for a few hours and you get to experience life, not the way you experience life. And you get to learn incredible things from some other facet of you's experience. It's, it's incredible. Do you believe there were any use of hallucinogens in the early church? I know a lot of people talk about that. I'm, I'm on the fence on that. I don't know. Some yeah. otherworldly experiences could be explained perhaps by something like that on a certain level. The, um, is it, I'm trying to remember what the name of the book is. Um, yeah, there is that book. Mer I know exactly the, the guy's name is like Marusku yeah. and it's the immortality key. Uh, and essentially it's the idea that in early Christianity, as well as other religions, that yes. conscious altering tools were a big part of, of the religious rituals. And so you go back into Mormonism and I don't know, I, I, I find the topic interesting. I know Bryce Blankenagel uh, from Naked Mormonism. He and another gentleman did a couple of presentations uh, during a couple of years of Sunstone where they presented the idea that that is the best explanation for how the early saints defined their spiritual experiences. And I will say that this immortality key certainly also, it also makes a lot of sense in early Christianity when you start to see the old ancient relics and the etchings on the relics seem to be medicine men getting medicines ready for the people to partake in. And Joe Rogan, I think, did an interview with him and the other gentleman that was on the show is Graham Hancock. And Graham Hancock has ideas that some think are crazy in other arenas, but they were putting the pictures and stuff on the, on the screen. And I found it at least interesting and worthy of consideration. And I also find that that early data in Mormonism is interesting and worthy of consideration. I don't know if I buy it, but I also don't know that I don't buy it, if that makes sense. Well, it, it, it does. Ex yeah, it does explain, <laughs> you know, why there were all these visions in the early church and now all of a sudden they stopped, you know, that it, there's got to be something that <laughs> made that stop. And that, that could be an explanation for that. I, I guess when I, you know, after you leave the church and you're uh, post post Mormon, it's, it's the drug thing, the word of wisdom is so ingrained in you that it's hard to even think of that, even though a lot of, a lot of people in the church are taking drugs <laughs> that are prescribed for a lot of the problems the church has caused in the, in mm -hmm. essence. But uh, you, you, when I first heard about psychedelics, when I first heard about some of these other options, I was kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, that's just people, you know, saying that something that they tried or wanted to use, but boy, we've been reading and it's showing up in like the body keeps the score. Uh, he yeah. talked yeah. very much about yeah. that. And a lot of very, uh, good scientific books are saying, no, th there is huge advantages and this is really working uh, and really solving problems that uh, that people have been in therapy for years and you do this and it and it solves it fairly quickly. So yeah, the science I, I would, is behind it. 
I would highly suggest that folks who have who haven't tiptoed into that arena yet, who are interested in gaining more information, who are open to the idea that maybe they would consider using them. I would suggest reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. But even better, I think, is to watch his Netflix documentary or his special on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind. And by the way, when you watch that, when they show somebody's experience tripping, they actually do it pretty well. Like that really is what you perceive your environment looks like as you're tripping. It's um, pretty crazy, but he was one that really hadn't done these things. He just wanted to see what the research said about whether they worked or not. And uh, he's a huge advocate for them at this point. Um, his father was had a terminal disease and he began to explore these conscious altering tools as a way to deal with death when one is terminal. And, and then he started to find out about the solutions to PTSD or depression. And he was just overwhelmed by the data that these things have an absolute usefulness. And uh, we humans have been using these things for thousands of years at a minimum. And I, I don't think we should just, you know, blatantly brush them aside and, and say, they're not going, you know, these aren't useful. These are drugs. They're illegal. We shouldn't use them. I think we ought to open up to the idea that, that maybe the people who are using these are thinking in ways that are actually more conducive to a healthier society. You can think, think that, of course, the uh, Utah legislature could pass it and the church would step in. <laughs> they would step to... in, yes. <laughs> that say was you one of my first rebellious <laughs> acts. I put that vote, was it yes on Prop 4, whatever it was. I put that sign in my yard and everyone's like, oh my goodness. So yeah. what are your thoughts on using this kind of therapies in a relationship? We did in our book club about a year ago have a couple come on and do kind of like a bonus event because like we said, so many people are so curious about this. And they talked similar to what you were saying. They had gone to Costa Rica and had these experiences with the bucket. They kept describing it, but they said in terms of their relationship, the conversations that this process allowed them to have, they said it, it saved their marriage. I mean, they were just so completely open and able to talk about the, you know, their real self to real self. And they yeah. said they can't, they couldn't even really describe what it was like, but they just yeah. said it absolutely saved us. So do you have any thoughts on, on that kind of therapy? Yeah, I have that's done... an issue for post-Mormons, as we all know. And we can talk about that later, the relationship aspect, once you are both on the other side. So yeah, I mean, again, going back to the fact that we were wearing masks our whole life, like mm -hmm. me and my wife, we got married yeah. when we were 19 years old. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know who we were. We certainly didn't know who the other person was. And we had this system around us that was heavy handed and telling us exactly how we needed to be. And so again, five years ago or so, I had done uh, MDMA in the same space with my wife and both of us acknowledged that, um, that when we woke up the next morning and then processing weeks into the future, months into the future, even years into the future, we from that very get-go to even now look back and go, it felt like we did about 10 years of therapy in a single night. Like I had to confront my own bullshit. I don't know if you guys use bad language on this podcast or not, but <laughs> but I had to confront my own unhealthiness. I had to confront my own absurdity, the things that I was adamant the world needed to uh, do things the way I wanted them to, to be done. 
And to just recognize like it was completely absurd for me to require my world to look a certain way and to require anyone in my world to be a certain kind of person or to look a certain way. And so it, it felt like years of therapy being done as, as both of us had no ego and we were talking about the most harmful things going on in our relationship. Uh, I couldn't even describe how much good came from that. My wife and I's marriage changed instantly from something that was pretend where we were ships passing through the night, you know, to being something really real where we both took each other extremely seriously. Um, yeah, I, I think these things are tools, unless you've done them, you won't get it, but these things are tools way beyond what you would think they could be. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, and the whole concept, like you say, wearing the mask and especially in a family relationship or a marriage relationship. And, and you do, you can spend your entire life never knowing the person <laughs> that you're spending all your time with. And, and that's just part of me thinks that's by design almost, you know, stay busy enough that, like you said, it's just parallel play the entire time. And until it comes to a head on the other side of Mormonism, and then you have right. to confront it. So that's, like I said, we heard from that other couple, the exact same thing, that there's a tool there to do that. And right. I guess other tools would be something like, like we'll land in like marriage on a tightrope. I know you were involved in that for a while and just things like that. Cause that's, I think in book club, we hear, we, we interviewed, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Daryl Ray. He is the founder of the Recovering from Religion oh, yeah, yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote really? this incredible book. It was called Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. And he came, he talked to our book club and we just interviewed him on Mormonish, but he said that's that's a sort of the fallout of any high demand, high control situation is people end up on the other side of that, like you described, married, you know young or not even young, but just married with your mask on is kind of how I look at it. <laughs> and then you're on the other side of it. And, you know, what the hell do you do then? Right. And and I think some of your podcasts under your umbrella address things like that. That is a big question, I think, in post-Mormonism. I don't know if you have any thoughts, thoughts on that kind of piggybacking on how, how psychedelics can help that. But we were sure influenced by Dr. Ray and all the things that he had to say. It was fascinating. There are lots of tools to awakening. Most of the people who I consider to have really deep wisdom that I, I see as kind of role models for me are folks who point to uh, really serious practices of meditation, for instance. Mm. Um, and so I think meditation is one of the tools that can get you there. But meditation, you have to be doing it for a considerable amount of time and really be dedicated to it. Conscious altering tools are kind of a, a cheap entrance to get you there. Like immediately you take it and 45 minutes later, you're having an experience that is life-changing. Um, travel is another one going to different places and experiencing different cultures and people, uh, does it. Um, there, there's certain modes of within reading books, um, within exposing yourself to other human beings who are considerably different than you, uh, music to some degree has the ability to give us new ideas. And, and I think that's the goal is to put yourself in a space where you think new thoughts. Uh, and I think conscious altering tools can do that to a significant extent. And you mentioned kind of the, the sexuality aspect. Um, 
how, how, you know, again, you grow up and you're completely naive to the way the world works and in society, the public school system, your church, your parents, nobody really gives you the tools to be a deeply high functioning adult. Who's really managing their feelings and emotions. Well, who's really making rational decisions about how they live their life. Um, nobody really equipped any of us to do that. And, and so you find somebody, you know, you're, you're 19, 20, 21 years old. And in the church, you're, you're pressed to do make decisions so quickly. You know, when someone comes back from their mission, they're supposed to marry so fast. And if they get to the age of 25, Brigham Young, uh, you know, considered them to, to be a, a menace to society. Menace. That's right. Yeah. And how could I possibly know what I want out of a partner? How could I possibly know what I want my, my sexual, what my sexuality is or what I want my sexuality to be? Um, it's such a difficult thing to try to figure out. And, and then you get sort of, and no offense, you get sort of trapped, right? You're, you, you've got children, you're in a marriage, you've been married for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And you, you're not really getting the life you want to get. You don't know how to even approach that. And, and everybody's scared by anyone else coming to them and saying, I want my life to look different, which really means that we won't have the same exact relationship we had before. But the only way we're ever going to get to be our authentic self is by being willing to have conversations that renegotiate the boundaries of what our relationship looks like. And so one of the things my wife and I got really good at was just talking to each other and saying, I, I really want my life to look like ABC. And she would say, well, I want my life to look like XYZ. And we love each other so much that we didn't want to get a divorce. And sometimes that is the best answer. Sometimes you, you're 20 years in and you realize that the two of you just don't have the commonality that you're now both going to be chasing an idea of things that you'll never get because the other person can't be what you need them to be. There's certain things in relationships that are the hardest, right? Like the, if somebody wants to have kids and somebody else doesn't. That's a big if, one. <laughs> if somebody wants to manage their finances one way and the other person wants to manage it entirely different. Those are two, those are two of the big three, but the third one is sex. And I think it's, it might even be the biggest of them all. And so I think you have a right as you figure yourself out, as you begin to learn who you are, I think you have a right to renegotiate your relationship. Um, in fact, if you don't mind, if, if you can give me two seconds here, I want to pull up just a, a really quick quote and it'll take me a second to find it. I wasn't really prepared for this. Um, yeah, no, great. We love it. Visual aids. Yeah. No, this, this is so much like what we discussed with Dr. Daryl Ray, you know, that whole renegotiation and being open and talking and that it's okay because things are very fluid like that. But the key is open communication and, you know, nothing needs to be scary. You just need to say what you, what you, what you see, how you see it. So yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic. And as we talk to post-Mormons in our book club and on Mormonish, everyone is navigating this. Everybody is talking about it and thinking about it. It's a huge reality on the other side of Mormonism because it was completely brushed under the rug 
why you were a Mormon. Don't you agree, Landon? Like you were never even agreed before you're married. You can't even discuss what you're, what, what you, you think want. it might look like yeah, as a sexual or... being in a marriage. You're not even supposed to talk about that. And yet well, you and, make this and, so important decision. And after, even after it's... you get married, it, uh, you know, you're often trapped by the fact that you think, oh, if I, if I say I want this and she's not down with that, you, you, you read a lot of times where like, a wife, uh, usually the wife, although I'm sure husbands do it too, wife. go to, into the bishop and say, is this okay? And bring it into the, and then all of a sudden yep. you're a sinner. And now you're We just somebody interviewed awful. somebody yep, yesterday who was a married woman in the seventies. And she did have to go discuss with her bishop uh, what she and her husband thought they would like to be involved in. And it was in that era where the bishop said, well, technically you're not supposed to, but you are supposed to obey your priesthood holder. So his answer to her was pray really hard that he changes his mind. <laughs> I mean, to even think that that kind of conversation would happen in a marriage where it should just be you and your partner, you know, or, or any kind of relationship like that. It's you and your partner, you know, talking but, about what works. It, yeah, it's you're still wearing just, that mask, though. You're wearing you're, the mask. When you're yep. in that and you you can't yep. put that mask down. And so that's why yep. uh, it it does become very scary once you're outside that um, mm -hmm. because you, you start talking about that and one side says, well, that's not what I want at all. And you want right. that. And what's that, that. going to do to our relationship and yeah. how are we going to end up uh, as a result of that? And so uh, it, it's good that you can discuss it. Maybe the MDA is the way that you can do that because it can certainly be scary yeah. Uh, to have that, that is discussion. literally what that couple said at book club. They said these were some of the issues and they put it all out there. And they said, this is what I've maybe been involved in. I want to tell you about this. This is maybe what I hope for the future. And they never could have done that without just being able to be open. And then once it was on the table, you go forward from there yeah. without your mask. And that's the key. And so here's the quote, and this is the most beautiful way to um, to express how complex and difficult renegotiating your relationship is. It's not a win-win. It may in fact be a lose-lose. You really have to decide what's important and what isn't and what you're willing to push for and what you're not. But here's the quote. Within ethical and legal constraints, we all have the right to push for what we want from our partner and to suffer the consequences for pushing too hard. Similarly, we also have the right to deny our partner's request and to suffer the consequences for shutting them down. But we need to remember that nothing in a relationship happens in a vacuum. It is influenced by what came before, as well as what else is going on in the relationship. So generosity can be rewarded, and bad behavior can be punished in more ways than one. Therefore, we have to keep the bigger picture in mind. What price am I willing to pay for this? If it's worth it, then it's worth it. But since life and relationships involve compromise and sacrifice, we have to consider the potential ripple effects. Wow. Yeah. And that really says it. Can you tell us what that is from? I have no idea. Um, it I saw it reminds it somewhere. me of something from the book Ethical Slut, if anyone has ever read that. There, I said it. Great it's a book. very interesting yeah, yeah, book. Yeah. yeah. No, Esther, it's a very Esther fascinating book. Esther Perel is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Ethical Slut is authored by her, but she's written the book Mating in Captivity. That's right. Yeah, and uh, yes. wrote a book State of Affairs, which I thought was really good as well. Yeah. Um, you, if you decide, if you wake up one day and you're like, I don't want to live my life this way anymore, 
you have a right to ask for your life to look different, but you have to realize, again, we want to make it so that none of us have to wear masks. We all get to be our full authentic self. That's not real. We are going to be in space with other human beings. And so we do have to compromise to some degree. We do have to adjust and not, you know, we're going to bump into each other. Your humanity is not going to mesh with my humanity. And so if we hang out all the time, which obviously as somebody in a relationship with uh, with a partner or somebody in a relationship with a parent or a child, um, you, you're going to bump into each other. You're going to get on each other's nerves. You're going to do things the other person doesn't like. It's not that you get to do everything you want and the other person has to suffer. It's that you're trying to figure out who can I be in space with and get along with well enough that we can support each other through the journey of life and care for each other but be respectful enough of each other that we compromise so that neither one of us is getting bumped into way more than the other. And some of us aren't a good fit for each other. And some of us don't figure that out until we've got 20 years in. Now I'm really lucky. I've got a wife who at every moment where I've shifted and moved, she's also like taken me seriously and said like, your needs are important too. Let's figure out how we accommodate that. And so she gets uncomfortable and I get uncomfortable and we make changes so that we can begin to live out a life that both of us um, has our needs either met more or we make it safer for the other person to, to not be bumped into so much. It's not easy stuff. Um, and as that quote says, like it almost assuredly isn't going to be exactly a win-win. Mm-mm. And consequences, always yeah. consequences. Those just naturally always. happen. So, always. and it makes me think, I mean, this is what being an adult is, you know, and and it's funny because I think the stigma and the stereotype as a post-Mormon is, oh my goodness, they look what they're doing now. It's sin or it's, it's not, it's being an adult and making adult decisions, whether it's redefining a relationship. So it doesn't look like what everyone else would maybe think was acceptable, or it's using substances. People wouldn't think, you know, it's using a swear word. It's drinking coffee. You're literally becoming an adult because in your high demand, high control situation for decades, for some people like me, (laughs) like Landon, right? Uh, You're kept in this sort of childlike state where anything other than childlike behavior is sort of frowned upon. So I think it's interesting that that's the stereotype. And you hear that from your tribe who you left. Oh, look at them now, you know, Look what they're doing now. Look at those crazy post-Mormons. They're falling apart. And that's not it at all. You're literally renegotiating your life and you're becoming an adult without a mask. So any thoughts on that, either Landon or- Well, I was going to say, there's a a YouTube series called Soft White Underbelly, where um, a famous author who wrote like a Pulitzer Prize book where he compared really successful people in this world with people that we would call the dregs of society- he kind of showed that they really were the same human being under different circumstances. But there's a YouTube series where you can watch him interview these folks, prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, narcissists, uh, mafia hitmen. I mean, all the folks that you're like, those are kind of crazy lifestyle, right? Right. And this, this idea of soft white underbelly, he interviews at one point, this uh, woman who had a hypersexuality. She just wanted to have sex with everyone all the time. And most of us would sit back and we go like, uh, so she's just making bad choices, right? But, but think about the spectrum of humanity. We have no problem with an asexual person. We go right. like, oh, that person's not interested in sex. No biggie. But why wouldn't there be, if there's an asexual person way over there, 
why wouldn't there be a hypersexual person over on that side? Like that seems like the yin and yang of, of the human experience. When we stop putting people into boxes, we realize that their humanity is just who they are. Um, and we shouldn't judge somebody who has the predisposition of being hypersexual as being some sort of menace to society when we take the asexual person and go like, yeah, you're perfectly fine to be with us. You're perfectly able, able to hang out here. We've got to make room for people just to be people. And I think we can, again, learn a lot by just hearing other people's stories and sensing that maybe the world, maybe the world doesn't work the way we thought. And maybe the boxes we put people in aren't really fair to them. I think that's very true. I saw a post the other day. Um, like I said, I, I helped John DeLynn run his Mormon stories book club. So I try to like post things on their Facebook page and it was a library in Denmark where you could check out another person. So it was an event. People have a name tag on that says addict or atheist or like you said, prostitute, or, and yeah. you could check that person out and you could sit with them for, ha not check them out, but check yeah, them out totally like good. a book and you could sit there with them and, and literally just understand them and have what a conversation, a which yeah. isn't that a great idea? I just yeah. love that. I'm, I'm trying to spin my wheels a little bit on, on how to do something at a, I don't know, a Thrive event or something, but no, I just love that. And it makes me realize that, I mean, think about religion. How does it control you? What is the greatest shame? It is your sexuality and, and it is everything that's natural about you. And, and it's been that way for thousands of years. And so they know I, what to I do. I have friends <laughs> who are asexual. I have friends who are polyamorous. Yeah. I have friends yeah. who have uh, kinks and fetishes. Like I, yep. I hang around with a lot of folks and I really, I know I used to always want to try to find people who are just like me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that anymore. I want to sit around with people who are very different than me. And I want to just see what different versions of humanity look like, what their experiences are. Um, I don't think there's a better tool to learn from than to sit with someone who's different than you and to learn from their experience. No, I, I agree. That's, that's been one of the great things. And one of the reasons that uh, we're doing this podcast is because we said, wow, we get to, we, we started in our book club, seeing so many people that were different than us that had different ideas. And we said, we wanted to share some of this. Let's, it is so fun to talk to these people and learn a different way than how I grew up. The way I grew up may not be the best way. It may, it's, it, it was a good way. I, I enjoyed my childhood, but what about this person? How did they live? How was their life? And, and I can learn from that. And it's just so exciting to see that and wonder, wow, what if, my life was that way. How would I, would I be a different person if I'd grown up in that environment or whatever? So yeah, what you're saying is exactly dead on. It's one of the great things of, for me, one of the great blessings of post-Mormondom is that I now no longer have to have to look at just one set of morality or one set of rules. Uh, I, I get to make my own. And that's one of the reasons when they say you went off and you went to sin or whatever, it's like, well, you got to understand, I don't uh, see that as a sin. I just see that as a exactly. different way of living or a different choice, but I don't see it as a sin. And therefore, I don't see that as a as a, a, a as a threat or anything like that. It's yeah. it's it's something I can learn from. We only have 
I only have really one rule and it, it involves a bad word again. I won't say it. I'll change it. It's you can say it. Okay. Don't, don't be a <laughs> You're dick. Fine. Don't, don't be a be dick. A dick. <laughs> and, and what it means to me is don't That's go great. around causing, uh, unnecessary harm. Don't go around causing any intentional harm or trauma to another human being. Like inevitably my being my version of human is going to bump into other people. I can't help that. I have a right to be me to a certain extent, but if I am sabotaging your human experience carelessly, like that's irresponsible. And so I don't care how you live out your life. You can be completely different than me. You can like different music. You can have a different sexuality. You can read different books. You can believe something different politically. I don't care. Don't hurt me. And I won't hurt you. And we'll learn to just sit in space together, respecting each other. And both of us are going to have to be a little uncomfortable. It's Bill Reel's golden rule. Don't be a dick. Be a dick. <laughs> you heard it here. There it is. So, so do you, do you run into, I think we talked about this in our conversation before family or friends that just, you know, push back on, on a new lifestyle and the other side of post-Mormonism. In my situation, I pretty much hide my new life and a lot of my new beliefs. So I'm not proud of that, but that's just what I've chosen to do right now. I mean, I was notorious for driving around in my car with shirts that looked like I wore garments. And then, you know, I'd quickly change into what I like, which is this. But if I knew I was going to a family member's house, I would quickly change back into something with sleeves. And I mean, I think you and both Landon are way more open about everything than I am like that, at least at this point in my journey. But do you run into friends or family that give you pushback or you sense disappointment? If so, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, I've got a, a father-in-law who point blank to my face said that I was core oh. Um, And so we're not really in human, you know, my boundaries are you don't get to be a dick to me. So, wow. um, so my boundaries are that now there's distance between you and me and until you can uh, self-correct that and recognize what you did and that that can't happen again, then we're going to be at distance. Right. I've, I've even got kind of a strained relationship with my own dad um, because boundaries are tough, but not necessarily church related. I, I think that, so I, I know like, for instance, say Quaku and the Midnight Mormons, right? Mm -hmm. They've gone around at times trying to figure out, because Bill talks about sexuality and he talks about doing things a new way. And so they've come out and said, oh, you know, we've listened to enough of Almost Awakened that we think Bill's had illicit affairs and he's a swinger and he does this and he does that. I, I think people, when they want you to be in their box, they're going to use tools of shame and manipulation to try to get you to be something that they need you to be, right? They want you to be the idea yeah. they have of you rather than let you be you. But no, that stuff doesn't really phase me. I, um, I'm not really bothered by what other people's expectations of me are. I feel like I'm a pretty good human being. I have to keep myself in check sometimes because I think I was telling you guys this before the show that I have a tendency to, if, if I feel like somebody's trying to get me or um, they're not being accountable to something, I sometimes will be a little harsh or snarky, uh, a little aggressive and kind of putting them in their place. And so I'm kind of having to work on keeping my ego in check, just like all of us are. But I, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be my version of human. And if that makes other people uncomfortable, so be it. I think for the most part, when you're vulnerable and you make space for people to be their authentic self, 
Um, a lot of times when I have parties at my home, I'll just open it up to the general public. I'll put a thing in the post-Mormon group here in Southern Utah and say, anybody's welcome. And people leave the party at the end of the night and they go, this was the most incredible space. Everybody just got to be them. And uh, I think most people appreciate safe spaces to be their vulnerable, authentic self. So no, I, don't, I think very little of, very little pushback. Did, did that come from, did, were you always that way? Or is that something that developed, uh, you, you kind of got a thicker skin as you've been more vocal and more, uh, you know, a lot more known uh, yeah. that people now throw a lot more darts at you because of it? Yeah, when I was going to church towards the end of my time going to church, I, I had drank coffee as a teenager when I was at my uncle's house or something. And once in a while, my, if we went golfing in the morning, I'd get a coffee. And I really liked it. And then I joined the church and I gave it up, right? So as we were kind of at the end of our time in the church, I started secretly drinking coffee and my kids would find coffee cups in my car and go to mom and mom, what's going on? What's dad doing? You know? <laughs> and when I first started drinking, uh, we would put uh, vodka in a five hour energy bottle and go to the restaurant so that none of the Mormons could see me, the Mormon yeah. doing this. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a, a, a time period where, you're testing boundaries and you're hiding it, or you're, you're, you're not exactly out in the open about what you do. I'll say this. I had tons of fear about if I started to speak openly and honestly about how I live my life, that people would come raining down, judging me. And what I found is as I took little baby steps, leaning into being vulnerable and authentic and just being me, I found that most people deeply appreciate that and much fewer than you think are standing ready to pass any judgment. Most people just don't care how you're living your life. You would hope that that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it depends on where you live, right? Sure. <laughs> Sometimes I feel in a cul-de-sac in the heart of the heart of Utah County <laughs> that I do have to have that other shirt in my car. So, but it is interesting how people kind of write their own stories about what you're doing. You know, yeah. if you they see you with a drink, oh, he's a post-Mormon, he's become an alcoholic, right? Or, you know, if, if you're in a relationship where it's um, consensual non-monogamy, oh, he's obviously now, you know, illicit. It's just oh, so funny yeah. how, how that narrative happens. But I don't blame anyone because they have no experience with what could be on the other side. So you couldn't possibly have integrity and live a life different than I think you yeah. should live it. That's it right yeah. there. You said it. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And I guess, like you said, just education is the key and just being your authentic self. And then nobody can fault you if you're upfront. But it's very difficult because, like yeah. you said, we were all raised with the mask. So I find myself all the time doing that, just saying what somebody would want to hear, kind of hiding. You know, it's just yeah. it's a habit. It's a very hard habit to break. Are you guys happier when you get to be you? Oh, yeah. no I doubt about it. No yeah. doubt. The problem is what I run into is um people saying you have changed so much like there must be something yeah. wrong you have completely changed which yeah. now that i understand and i'm thinking more about the authentic self i'm realizing well i'm probably just coming into really being me but do you ever find that bill just that people say you're completely different and, and it's usually not said in a positive way right <laughs> you're, you're totally different now yeah, I, I really don't run into it much. Um, there might be a little bit of family that does that. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the people that I put myself in space with are the people who value me for being me. 
And uh, I'm not really too concerned about what strangers think or what even people I know who have a problem with who I am, that that's their problem. Really. It's not mine. I'm happier. I'm more content. I feel I get up in the morning and my day is much better than it was 10 years ago. And I was trying to fit everything into the box people had for me. Um, I'd much rather be this version. I I find I'd much rather make a mistake and own it and say, damn, that was my mistake, but it was my mistake. I chose it. I knew what I was doing. I, I took the 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 risk and i that was bad uh but i own it yeah as opposed to you know oh satan made me do it or (laughs) i was led astray (laughs) or anything else it's no i made the decision and i own it same thing you you have agency (laughs) you actually really have agency yes true agency where (laughs) you get the bad the ugly the good bad ugly it's all mine i gotta own it i can learn from it but i don't have to be shamed of it I don't have to be afraid of failure that I'm not going to go to heaven or something because I made a decision. (laughs) I can make that decision. I can fail and I can say, yeah, that was a bad thing. I guess, uh, you know, that you you learn by yourself and you you learn it becomes yours as opposed to I'm I'm doing it because I'm told to do it. And I I also don't believe in, and again, I a hundred percent agree with you. I also don't believe in free will. And what that means is that people are doing in any given moment, people are doing the very best they can. Um, We often think like, oh, I can make this decision or I can make that decision. And it feels like that's what's going on in our head. But even the folks who uh, disagree that there is no free will, the experts in the field, their argument would be that free will is very limited. If there is free will, it's extremely limited. You come to a moment with all of your DNA, your past history, your all your experiences. And while it feels like you're making a choice, there's some of the data shows that your subconscious actually made the decision 300 milliseconds before your conscious mind came up with the reason for why you're going to do something. And if you go back to the animal kingdom, we are sentient beings who can think about abstract ideas. We have narratives running through our mind. We, uh, we, we understand past and future. But the reality is that the animal kingdom is making the exact same decisions we are. We've just applied a story to it. And again, the data suggests that maybe the story comes after the actual innate decision inside you to do the thing you're going to do. Um, That's from Free Will, the book. That's Uh, Sam Harris. That was the very first book we ever read in our book club because our philosophy is now we know what we don't believe. Let's figure out what we do believe through reading. And yeah, that book had some pushback. Remember that, Landon? Because some people were like, that's impossible, you know, because you're always taught, you know, you've made the decision and, you know, you're the moral thinker. But the idea that, no, you're the sum of all this time and essence and, and humanity and it happens. So it yeah, that was kind of a revelatory, if I can use that word, <laughs> book to us. Yeah. We, we had some judges that were in, in that are in the book club and, and yeah, one like of them attorneys said, and judges. you know, I, I kind of believe this because he said the same people would come into my courtroom over and over and I'd ask them yeah. questions and it was clear they simply could not make a better choice. They could not that was in that. their nature. Uh, and yeah. he started realizing that. So it, it, yeah. it's a unique perspective. In so much of this is genetic. I mean, we, we come down really hard again. I, I absolutely do not want to give any sort of pass to say a serial killer or a child molester. But the reality is that if you talk to a geneticist who works in that field, 
they're not making decisions like we think they are. It, they have predispositions to do really unhealthy things. So for instance, a serial killer can't stop thinking about killing somebody. And I've never really thought about killing somebody. There was one guy back when I was in my twenties who was a bully <laughs> in my place of employment. And for like, for every once in a while, you. I'd be like, man, if I could just take that guy yeah. out. Right. But most of us don't really think about killing people. Right. And some human beings can't stop thinking about killing people. It, it's so foreign to us. But again, when we understand that free will is either limited or non-existent, it, it pushes us to be much more compassionate for the human experience and recognizing that people just aren't able to show up exactly the way we want them to or the way we show up. Now, and that's exactly opposite of the punitive nature of the church which yeah. is constantly judging every quote decision, which Everything. may not really even be a decision that you made. And yet you're always called to task on that. And you live your whole life like that until you're just yeah. beaten down or do a pulp. There you go. Yeah. I said it. So <laughs> Love it. wow. It's just, it's just incredible to explore this whole world on the other side of, you know, whatever you want to call it, high demand, high control. It's just, and, and I think your story is interesting, Bill, because it sounds like, and if I got this right, your wife at the very same time as you, you both, step to the other side, which is unique, I think. Yeah. We, when I went to her, letting her know I had a faith crisis, the first words out of her mouth were, well, let's go church hopping in. Let's try something else. Let's oh, see what else works. Wow. And I was wow. scared that what she was going to say was, that's not going to work for me. You promised you'd be an eternal companion. Right. We went to the temple. Uh, you hear so many horror stories. And, I, and my guess is about 50% of mixed faith marriages end in divorce solely because of the religious differences. Mm -hmm. and um, that's atrocious. That shouldn't happen. Like it's, it used to be three hours on a Sunday. Now it's two hours on a Sunday and we let it mean so much more than it does. Right. Um, because, because of all the theological ramifications, but um, yeah, she deconstructed. I, I wasn't in her ear sharing all my podcast. Instead, she was on her own journey on the social issues, seeing the church, not be healthy and compassionate to people who are different who were on the margins, who didn't fit in the box. And I was much more on the historical side, although the, the November 2015 policy was a, a deep kind of fracture for me. And we were just deconstructing different things at the same time that led to us both at kind of a joint moment going, this is absurd. Why are we, why are we traumatizing ourselves by doing this? And are your children also all um, out. out or that they're all, all out, out almost wow. at the same moment as well. And they all did oh it on their own. Goodness. My two daughters were more on the social issues. Um, my youngest kid is just, he's a, he's a genius. He's one of these kids with like a 150 IQ. And he just, <laughs> when he was eight years old, the missionaries were trying to prep him for baptism. Cause we asked the missionaries to still teach him. He said, what if there's no God? Like, what if there isn't? And that, you know, as an wow. eight year old, and then yeah, my a little critical thinker and my oldest son is a lot like me. If things aren't rational or logical, he, he kind of sees through it pretty quick. Um, all my kids deconstructed essentially at the same moment. So we all as, a, as an entire family, we just walked away from the church at the same moment and never looked back and it, nobody got stuck in or stuck out. We, we all kind of did it together, but for entirely different reasons, kind of away from each other, even though we were all in the same home. That's a great way to go because it can certainly be divisive when you're all going at different times. It's a privileged way to go too. Feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's privileged. I, I'm lucky. I, I'm a convert. I didn't have anybody 
breathing down my neck, telling me what I should do. Other than, you know, I had some, an in-law or two, but whatever. Um, my kids, my wife, like we were all on board. It, I just, it, it really is a privileged position. It's unique. So, that is for sure. It absolutely yeah. is. So, wow. Well, and, and that puts you in a position, I think, to, you know, without maybe dealing with those interpersonal relationships that other people maybe struggle with, there's so much stress and trauma that puts you in a position to really be there for people and to be able to help in the way that you do, because you are so involved and so active in so many post-Mormon avenues that people can find help and community. The big, the big thing is community. I think that people are looking for. So it's, well, it's, it's hard to find. It is. Yeah. It's hard to negotiate those new ideas with another person, but when they're in the church, you're doing it with at least three other people because, you know, you've got the uh, the church side that's poking into that same thing, telling them, no, you can't do this. No, he can't do that. So it's almost like you're ganged up on because there's another side saying, no, you can't do these things, or you can't think that way, or you can't explore these new ideas that's that's not acceptable so when you go together the world the world opens up it's hard to imagine that there were people who deconstructed mormonism all by themselves without the internet in like the 1950s or the 1940s and i've like met the some tanners. of them aren't you blown away by what the tanners did the more how, i oh yeah all the sh all the pressure and shame to stay in yeah and to just risk it all without having the community that we have today, you know, this mm -hmm. post-Mormon community really, yep. the moment you go, I don't believe it. They're like, great, here we all are. Yep. Um, to have done Bye. that in your neighborhood in 1950, to be the leper in your, in your neighborhood, that yeah. just, there are really courageous people out there that have done really big things yep. without the support that all of us did it with. Yep. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's yeah. why we're all so eager to help anybody. You know, everybody wants to be there. And, and yeah. that's, I think, why we all continue to do what we do. I mean, if we put out a podcast that somebody happens upon and they feel less alone, like I'm sure we've all gotten those notes from people or comments, you know, I didn't feel so alone after listening yeah. to this, or you hit it on the head. This is what yeah. I'm going through. I mean, then we win. That's what we do it for. It's not for fame or fortune. <laughs> not I, I at all, but it's for something like that. Bill, you, oh, please. do you feel you've done more as a, as a, post-Mormon helping people than you did as a bishop in the church. Yeah. I mean, That's as a bishop, a I helped 130 people and I, and I cherished that experience. And even though I've lost my testimony, according to them, and I've apostatized from the church, there are numerous people from my ward back in Ohio who say, You're, you still are the best bishop I've ever had. Um, I deeply cherish the time I had to oversee those that ward and that small community and to have an impact there. And I'm proud of the way I conducted myself. I'm proud of how I was a nuanced Mormon and I made way for them to be uh, much more safe being them and having normal problems than I think most bishops were. Um, it's obviously kind of our leader roulette, right? Uh, but, sure. but on this side of things, I mean, you're talking tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of folks and there's something magical about giving people enough information that they can now make new informed choices and, and choose to live a life a different way. And they come back and report that they're happier for having done so. Um, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing yeah, and better you've done that. a lot of it. You're, you're, you're one of the leaders out there and, and yep. certainly look up to you for what you've done and the, 
the different uh, platforms you've brought mm-hmm. out uh, that uh, have helped it. I, I, I went to marriage on a tightrope, uh, you know, so I, I appreciated that and many of the other podcasts when I was struggling and I couldn't find another single person. I couldn't find anybody to talk to, but I'm listening to these podcasts and I'm going, I'm absolutely positive. I'm right here yeah. that I know that I'm crazy. right. But yeah. where do I find crazy. that community? And and uh, so these thrive events and these different groups, uh, you know, I've been accused of, you know, why do you why do you want people to to leave their church? And it's like, yeah. I don't. I just want them to make an informed decision and then make the decision. But I want to make sure that they at least know the facts and then make that decision because yeah. I felt yeah. lied to. <laughs> two two things. One is I'm really lucky. Um, there were people who blazed the trail before me, uh, Dan Witherspoon, John Dolin, Lindsay Hansen Park, D. Michael Quinn, Eugene England, and Sterling yeah. McMurrin, right? Um, I was also lucky to be surrounded by really good people who had a knack for putting out a message that was helpful. Alan and Katie Mount, you mentioned, Radio Free Mormon. Um, again, Brittany Hartley and Terry Hales. I'm lucky to be surrounded by really brilliant people who are also really good people. Um, There's just so many folks who have just blazed the trail before us. And there are so many folks who offer a voice in this moment that are worthy of, of taking their ideas and thoughts and kind of ruminating on them and sitting with them and seeing if they make a difference. I'm also lucky that there was something in me that trusted outside voices. So Brene Brown, um, Jack Cornfield, uh, Buddhism for Beginners is a really high in Miguel Ruiz, the four agreements, um, uh, Eckhart Tolle and, and so Alan Watts, I, I could keep going. There yep. really are smart minds out there that have just helped me to n- see a better way. And there were people who made it safe to question and people who had said questions before. So I wasn't the first one to do it. And so I'm just really lucky to have and Mormonism is a fun space to play in. People used to say, aren't you mad at it? Um, I have friends who go like, I'm just going to, I want to see it burned down, burned to the ground. And, and I'll tell you the problem with that is that you're going to be 80 years old one day and on your deathbed and Mormonism is still going to be out there somewhere. And you're going to have spent a lot of energy, time, trying to burn it down when that was never going to happen anyway. And so I, I chose early on that my goal was never to burn it down. My goal was always to just give people enough information that they could make new choices. Yeah. And informed decisions. I think that's yeah. the important part. So informed yeah, no, I love that. It's, we should, none of us should be about what we're not, you know, about, we should be about what we are now. And I think, yeah. and I think this is actually a really good place kind of to end the conversation. I think you love have it. just, what you have, what you've done is given people a roadmap. I mean, be it through choosing a podcast, reading a book, finding somebody that you admire um, that you can that you can sort of follow and learn from. There are just so many paths. There are as many different paths as there are different ways that people decide to leave the situation that they were in. So there's not one path. And so this roadmap out there with people like Bill and the others, you know, it's just a beautiful place to be and it's available. And I think it's up to all of us to help those that are newly, you know, finding their way into a different space to understand this, all this, it exists, you know, because it can be a very beautiful, positive experience. 
I mean, that does not discount how people get here and the pain that they feel and the trauma, but there are people, everybody's rooting for everybody, I think. And that's, that comes across in all of your podcasts and everything that you do, Bill. So we absolutely, this is why we were so excited to have you on. We just appreciate you so much and everything that you do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that very much. Are you guys still doing the book club? Yes. Yeah. Oh yep. yeah. Okay. Every so some, month, at some every point, <laughs> at some point on Audible, Jack Cornfield's Buddhism for Beginners. It's not a book. It's him standing in front of a group of people and doing 12 different sessions where he gives secular, he gives you the tools of secular Buddhism and they are life-changing. It will allow you to sit with your feelings in the hard moments and to be able to not have your ego manipulate the world around you, not get people to do what you need them to do so you can feel safe, but just to let things be as they are. And so I highly recommend it. Well, that's great. There you have it, everybody. A number one recommendation from the one and only Bill Real. That's great. Yeah, awesome. I find that a lot of people gravitate over toward, toward Buddhism because it really does help you get in touch with, with what you're feeling and yeah. give you those tools. So it's amazing. So And it can be Landon- secular. And it can be secular, which is and what it we has want. its problems too. Uh, if you saw the Dalai Lama recently, oh it has its my issues. goodness! Yes, what? I just saw I, that he apologized today, but I'm thinking, I don't know if you're coming back enough. from this. I do no. not know what this is going to do to the world, but wow, that was we could do another hour on that. That would be yeah. crazy. Landon, do you have any final thoughts? And then we will wrap up. This has been absolutely amazing, Sweet. revelatory, if I can use that word again. Thank you. I just <laughs> it's wanna, my favorite word to use in another way. I just want to thank fun. Bill for coming on. At, yeah. I, I want to run out right now and call several people I know. And say we <laughs> had some of the wisdom I that I just learned. <laughs> yeah. Love so it. thank well, you. I hope it's helpful. We're, we're such geeky fans, right? Yeah. Geeky fans. That's it. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, then I guess we'll say goodnight from Mormonish. Um, please, everybody, like and subscribe and hit that notification bell if you'd like to um, be made aware of when our new episodes drop. And again, we just. Thank Bill Real for coming on and just our entire conversation was just, it's going to leave me smiling for the rest of the evening. So we'll say goodnight now. Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you, Landon. Good night, everybody from Mormonish. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.